the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, drought-breaking rain for some in what's been a difficult year to date with record low rainfall, but it looks like it's turning around, so fingers crossed. Many croppers say they're working around the clock in another part of the state to bring their harvest haul ahead of the three-day forecast for rain in the Riverina. Yeah, for sure. So our subsoil moisture got us got us home. Um, it's a, a big reason why summer spraying is probably one of the most important jobs. Uh, Ten mils of water can make a big difference, but it's um, it's about the management of the crop as well throughout the year. And you know, it's a credit to the to the district and surrounding. I think we've all lifted our game a little bit in these droughty years or tighter finishes. We've yeah, we're we're able to grow much bigger crops on less water. In the header, trying to get that crop in, as I said, with that three-day forecast of rain in the Riverina. More on that story shortly. But uh, first, well, it's drought-breaking rain. That's the verdict from one farmer from north of Canamble who recorded 116 millimetres overnight. The area is currently in drought and uh, also intense drought, according to the Department of Primary Industries' latest figures. But the recent thunderstorms have been patchy with some farmers still hoping that more rain is on the way. James Goldsmith farms 50 kilometres north of Canamble, where he's got merino sheep, cattle and winter cropping, and he says the dams have nearly filled up overnight. Uh, we had 116 millimetres overnight. And what does that mean for you? It's I know it's been very dry in the Canamble area. Uh, it, it means a hell of a lot. Uh, we had dams going dry, stopped getting bogged, all sorts of things like that. The, the water's running. Um, dams have nearly filled up overnight. There's, there's water running out of the paddocks everywhere. Our grass cover has still been very good, um, you know, through our stocking rates and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, which, which will turn us around very quickly because, yeah, things are – even we've had small little falls sort of for this month. Yeah, only six mils here, nine mils there, and um, which started to green things up. And uh, but and this will just carry it on, and and yeah, the feed will get away on us now. And was it isolated storms, or have your neighbours uh, got much rain as well? Uh, from from what I can see or hear, um, the it's it's been fairly general this side of town anyway. I'm not sure about the the western side or. Uh, other parts of Canamble, but um, yeah, in our little neck of the woods, it's all sort of been around that uh, 100, 100 plus mils. Uh, I did see someone 158 mils, about 12 k's to the west of us, but um, yeah, it's all been very good over that 100 mil mark anyway. That's amazing. And to put it in perspective, how does that compare to the rest of what's been a pretty tough year in 2023? Uh, it's nearly doubled my total uh, overnight. Uh, I was 100 and, uh, 140 mils to the to up till now, uh, and then you know, 116 mils on top has nearly doubled it. So yeah, it's been a very tight, tough year. Uh, probably uh, yeah, one of the worst uh, as far as uh, as far as seasons goes. Even comparing it to the, the three year drought. Um, we sort of just didn't see it coming in and on the back of, um, of stock prices. It's been a very tough year. So this has certainly put a lot of smiles on the dial of people. Wow, it's a, that's a remarkable turnaround then from if it's as bad as it was in 2019 from your point of view. 
Yeah, I, I just it, it just was a it's been a combination of a lot of lot of um, factors sort of that has put it up there with one of the worst ones anyway. With harvest underway across New South Wales, did many people get a crop in around Canamble? What about uh, how did you go on your farm? Uh, we didn't even get a sowing rain. Um, we were only about 35, 40 mils to the end of May. Uh, didn't get a lot in June, so uh, we didn't actually get a crop in. Uh, this On this northern side, very patchy, uh, very little grain came off. Uh, the western side of Canamble, uh, they they were just jagging a few storms back at harvest and uh, back at sowing time and um, throughout the growing season. So they actually did get a bit of crop on the western side of Canamble. But uh, out out our side, yeah, very very patchy. Yeah, a little bit of seed recovery and uh, not much else. When you think about the rain that you've had overnight, what does it mean for the next few months ahead? Oh, it certainly sets us up sets us up for a, a, a good start for next year. Uh, getting country ready for um, for winter crop next year, uh, and hopefully it'll um, yeah stop us from uh, uh, you know we can stop feeding in a in a week or so time once that grass really gets going and um, it just just change your, changes the whole whole outlook it might uh, might even help lift a few, few markets here and there and to your mind James is is 115 millimeters is it is that drought breaking rain for you in uh, on your farm or do you need more uh, to to really recover from what's been a pretty tough year uh, no, I think it is. I think it is drought breaking for here. Like I said, we still maintain grass cover, so it was only a matter of, it, of those grass butts um, uh, starting to to green up that takes us out of uh, away from feeding. Uh, and with that amount of rain and the way it fell in, sort of there were some heavy storms through it, but then good gentle rain um, at the back end of it there last night. I think um, it, it it allowed water to run, and I see dams are are already filling up quite nicely. So. Yeah, I, I would nearly say this will sort of take us out of that stage anyway. James Goldsmith is a mixed farmer from Canamble. He was speaking there about the rain, uh, the positive, very positive rain with Josh Becker. Well, many croppers are on the flip side. Many croppers are working around the clock at the moment to bring in their harvest haul ahead of a three-day forecast for rain in the Riverina. Broden Holland has his eye on the radar and with about 15 millimetres of rain forecast for today, he's smashing the hectares as quickly as he can with two headers on the go at once. Reporter Emily Doak hitched a ride in the header with Broden to find out how his harvest was tracking on his property near Young. Uh, so we're now under sown wheat at the moment, so under sown with the pasture. The, we've got a disc and time trial in here. Um, the disc was doing about five and the uh, time's doing about three and a half, so a bit of a difference, but it's more timing. Um, but yeah, about H2 wheat, so we're pretty happy with how it's all going. And in terms of the um, tonnages, what sort of tonnages are you seeing? So our wheat should average around five tonnes of hectare across our farm. Canola uh, did 2.2, so yeah, look, we're happy with our yields for the rainfall we've got. We've probably got decile three rainfall this year on uh, with decile six yields, so um, we're more than happy with what we've got. So is that a hangover from last year's wet weather? Yeah, for sure. So our subsoil moisture got us got us home. Um, it's a, a big reason why summer spraying is probably one of the most important jobs. Uh, Ten mils of water can make a big difference, but it's um it's about the management of the crop as well throughout the year and you know it's a credit to the to the district and surrounding 
I think we've all lifted our game a little bit in these droughter years or tighter finishes. We've, yeah, we're, we're able to grow much bigger crops on less water. And what sort of quality are you seeing um, as we're sitting in the header at the moment? Uh, so here we're about H2. It just depends on where we put some urea. Um, but yeah, where, where we did the urea, we're H2, uh, and where we missed out of a few strips just for some trials, uh, it's back to sort of ABW. So yeah, this is our undersown, so we didn't sort of push it as hard, but most of our other wheat's been around H2. So we're here in the header, it's pretty hot and steamy out there at the moment. The clouds are building to the west and there's forecast for rain for the rest of the week and ahead. Is it a bit of a race to get this off? Yeah, uh, <laughs> since we started wheat it's been a race because the forecast has been pretty bad. But um, we're a bit over halfway uh, on the last, well, the last five days, uh, first five days of wheat we did, we did 5,500 tonne of wheat I think so. We've been going pretty hard and the new headers we've got, yeah, they're going awesome and allowing us to get off what we need to get off during the day and before rain periods. So just paint me a little bit of a picture of how big your operation is. How much um, crop have you harvested this year and how much have you got to go? Uh, so we've done 1,900 hectares of canola and then 100 hectares of beans, trying them this year. And then we've done about 1,200 hectares to date of wheat. We've got about another 1,200 to go. So, yeah, we've got about 4,400 hectares of crop total this year. But, yeah, we've got the two headers and uh, we're going to smash it with the two of them pretty easily. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy and everything's going well. It's just a lot of tonnes per hour, so that's, it keeps everything busy. And so as you're on the tail end of it, how would you sum up this uh, crop growing season? It's been pretty good for us. Well, every year's a challenge, but um, it's had its own challenges, but it's been very fulfilling to see the yields we can get with the finish we've had. We've been implementing a lot of new things uh, over the past sort of five or six years, and we've had a couple of, well, three or four really good ones, and it was really nice to see in a dry finish what we could do, and, you know, I think we've probably upped our level a little bit uh, in the droughts, so that'll be good because that's where we're probably lacking a little bit. We're probably falling behind in the drier years. That was Broden Holland, who farms northwest of Young, and uh, he was speaking from actually from the tractor because he's uh, trying to smash the hectares as quickly as he can ahead of that rain. And he was speaking there to Emily Doak. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 16 minutes past 12, and we'd like to hear from you. Send us a text about the rain. Was it a game changer and positive for you? And you're pleased because it's... Uh the grass is going to leap out of the ground now, Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. Or are you worried about the rain because you're actually like uh, Broden there, you're in the uh, harvester at the moment trying to trying to get the crop in. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. with that uh, forecast rain coming uh, through uh, some of those parts of the state where harvest is underway. It's coming up to uh, 16 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, a win for Laos and a win for Australia. That's how Dr. Nerida Donovan characterises the work that Australians do in Southeast Asia. She says that her work as a plant pathologist enhances the ability to recognise, diagnose and manage those diseases and vectors 
which will increase the ability of industry and government in both Australia and Laos to manage biosecurity threats. There's a number of diseases that they've, uh, and bacteria that they're watching at the moment. Dr Nerida Donovan travelled to Laos earlier this year in her role as uh, New South Wales DPI citrus pathologist and mentor with the Crawford Fund Laos program, and she says that uh, these sort of arrangements sets up an early warning system for citrus. Oh, there are huge benefits, particularly I work on citrus diseases and we have to be prepared and be able to diagnose and understand field symptoms and what vectors that transmit these diseases look like. And the only way we can do that is to go over to countries where these diseases occur. And so we've had Crawford Fund activities in Laos for many, many years and samples are transported back to Australia we test them in our laboratory and they give us positive control samples. So what we mean by that is every time we run a test, if we get a suspect sample, we think it may be this really nasty disease, for us to run that test and further know that the test worked properly, we have to run it against a positive sample. And so the samples that we get from the work from Crawford Fund activities are so important for us to be able to test suspect samples, to be able to validate or develop better diagnostic tests, and also to be able to recognise the symptoms when the sample arrives, the, the suspect sample. And it also helps us to understand what, what are the people doing over in this country? How are they dealing with it? How do they do their surveillance activities? How, what are the best ways to find the insect vector of that, pet, of that disease? And um, so we get valuable information so that if that disease breaches our borders, we are better prepared to not only be able to detect it, to be able to eradicate it, and to be able to transition to management if we cannot eradicate. And in these countries, quite often they don't have many plant pathologists, so I would imagine. Uh, no, no, um, but it's amazing. It is very much a collaboration on the ground because um, the people that we go and visit, they haven't had the benefit of the education that we have or the experience. They may not have travelled to other countries where their disease also exists. So we go over there. We don't think that we know everything. We go in there. We work with them. We might um, suggest low-cost practical changes to improve the production system, but we also learn from them about the disease, about the pest, and, and about how to manage in that situation. And I guess, too, the other thing is that you see bugs over there that you don't see here, and you don't. Yep. we're not familiar with it, and you sort of... How does that fit into the whole process of spreading disease, things like that? Yeah, so that that's so important. So the biggest threat to the Australian citrus industry is one long bing, HLB. It's a bacterial disease spread by the Asian citrus psyllid and that is widespread throughout Laos and that's how we first got involved because their federal government was um, promoting citrus as a poverty alleviation crop but the citrus was declining across the country so right at the top of their levels of government the federal minister for agriculture said we need help with our citrus can someone come over so we went over there we did surveys we did testing and we gave them the information on what was likely causing the decline of the citrus trees and made some recommendations about what to do about it. But in turn, we learnt about HLB. We learnt about the biggest threat to Australian citrus. We've got those positive control samples. That has helped us to develop better diagnostic assays in collaboration with some other countries because we had a really good collection of bacteria that they didn't have in some of these other countries.
What about the risk that there are some diseases out there too in these countries that haven't been discovered yet as well and, you know, that they might, you know, or that they might be, you know, go to far-flung parts of these countries and, you know, mm. find, you know, what's that disease? Why is it affecting the leaf like that? Those sorts of things, is, that must be part of the challenge too. Yeah, it is a challenge and with improved technologies, improved diagnostic te- technologies, we're finding more things. Sometimes these things have even been in Australia for a long time and we just didn't know. We weren't able to detect them. So um, in our work, in the samples we bring back from other countries, in the samples that we have from surveillance activities in Australia, we are starting to find more stuff. And it can sound really scary, but sometimes... It's better to uh, know about yeah, it. Yeah, it's better to know, to know how to manage it. That, that's the thing. You don't, if you don't know, it can cause an issue. So you're part of a program, program getting involved in going overseas and that, that sort of thing. So, you, know, uh, you know, how important is that? You know, and, and, and how many other of your colleagues are able to do that too? Mm. So for Citrus, we have an industry-funded uh, um, Citrus Pathology Program that runs out of New South Wales DPI. And Crawford Fund activities are very small budget activities that give us those samples and the experience we need and give us those essential tools to be able to work on the larger industry-funded programs. So they really underpin that work. And, and industry is happy to support that work. They know that we're testing samples from overseas because that's the only way we can, we can get those positive samples in our collection. Mm. And so Citrus Farmers right behind it? Well, I think so. We're, we're trying to spread the word more on the biosecurity threats, of which HLB is our biggest threat. Um, we've been spreading the word for a long time. It's devastating citrus across the globe, and it, and it is widespread across Asia, and it's in countries quite close to our northern borders. So it is our major threat. And um, it's very useful, the experience that we get on the ground in being able to see the disease, what it looks like. It can look different in different microclimates. And, and what the psyllid looks like, you really have to get your eye in. And, and that's only possible if you're standing there where the disease is. And, and so it's really important for us to get prepared. So make sure you clean your shoes when you come back next time. Oh, yeah. You always take a spare toothbrush. <laughs> take an old toothbrush with you and clean your shoes. That's, a, I, yeah, that's if you even bring them back with you. Mm. Yeah, we'll throw them so out, yeah. Everything in the suitcase gets dumped into the washing machine mm. and, and then it gets aired in the sun. Mm. So we're super careful with that sort of thing. Dr Nerida Donovan is a New South Wales DPI citrus pathologist and mentor with the Crawford Fund. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 23 minutes past 12. And uh, we're, asked for, we're asking for some uh, rainfall figures as well. Uh, keep doing that. We're getting a few in now. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. Well, let's go for a bit of a step back in time now to a New England orchard more than a century old. Green Hill Orchards near Arding was established in 1865 and it's still owned and operated by the Yeomans family. It's now the last remaining local orchard growing cool climate fruits like cherries, peaches, plums, nectarines, apples and pears. Lara Webster stopped by the packing shed to take a walk down the memory lane with grower Warren Yeomans. There's always a little rock there somewhere that catch the bottom. If the walls of Warren's packing shed could speak, they'd have plenty to say. They've seen generations come and go. They've watched little boys grow up to be men, little girls grow up to be women. And they've seen more fruit than you or I would ever be able to count. 
So mm. we're just uh, standing in the entrance to the um, packing shed at the moment. Um, it runs in front of the cool rooms and also the pack, all the packing facility. So all the frit comes in here and goes out here. And I suppose it's the um, we call it the bottleneck of the operation because the orchard is um, all spread out across mm. the property, and uh, so the fruit has to be harvested and harvested by hand, but it comes in. Uh, in containers, could be stacked on pallets or whatever, and so there's a lot of, you know, the sorting process happens here, or if it's apples and pears, they go into storage, and it gets sorted out gradually through the season, but with cherries and stone fruit, it's a pick and sell, because they have a short shelf life, Uh, so it's a quick turnaround, so there's lots of comings and goings uh, through this part of the I suppose you could say this shed's almost like the heartbeat of the operation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it probably needs a transplant at times. Well, we're looking around us and you've got... This is the original part of the shed we're in, isn't it? We've even got some of the original flooring still here. We've got some of the original beams above us. Yeah, no, um, I don't even know how old it is, but it it would be fairly old and... um, yeah, well used, and if it could speak, it'd be interesting to know some of the things that's happened in the past. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you did grow up here. What are some of your memories? Um, my memories, well, well, there's certainly um, changed. Like years ago, they used to even sort cherries by hand. Like you just pick them up and turn them over your hand and put them in the box. And, um, and then my dad decided that it had to be a better way, and he built a, a cherry, just a conveyor belt, really, but just to sort cherries on and you know, put some lighting out of the top and. Uh, things like that but um, yeah the fruit sorting has changed over the years as well and then with the advent of um, forklifts and mm. you know, bulk handling and stuff like that because uh, as a kid we used to pick well say with apples we used to put them into wooden boxes and so stacked in the orchard stacked on the trailer stacked at the front of the shed stacked in the cool room mm. because now with a forklift you just lift up a bin and transport straight in so yeah bulk handling has made a big difference but yeah, it's, it's all about yeah, trying to achieve those levels of efficiency, you know, which is from the, how big the tree is to how far it is from the shed to how much movement we do around the shed and lots of different things. Yeah. There is such a rich, rich history here. I mean, your family have been here since the 1800s. What do you think has been behind you surviving so long? Do you think? Uh, well, I'm probably one for... Um, sticking at something and persisting I think it, it's just um, I do enjoy the uh, the work that mm-hmm. we do growing fruit and harvesting and lots of things it's um it's always a reward you know, for effort you know, to to bring the the produce in at the end of the day and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it is what form of agriculture is involved you know, you know there's always that enjoyment of the harvest at the end of the day um, but for me it's fruit and uh, the various types of fruit if people enjoy what we grow uh, that's satisfaction as well The orchard may have been here since the 1800s, but its future's still looking bright, and Warren's second eldest child, Tom, is part of the future and its direction. With the advent of YouTube videos and that sort of thing, information travels really fast, so now I get to follow some of the cutting-edge orchards around the world, particularly North America. There's a lot of innovation, and people are making breakthroughs all the time in, in how to best manage the nutrition to reduce reliance on chemicals so yeah a lot of that is foliar applications for us in our situation in the orchards. So tell me about the work you've been doing in that space and and how you're progressing. In that space one of the big ones has actually been incorporating things from the ocean so um, fish extract, uh, seaweed extract so 
be that either composted kelp or alkaline extract kelp, that's been a, a game changer for us in improving the resiliency to any kind of stress events like after a hailstorm. Touch wood, we won't have a big hailstorm this season. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So after a hailstorm or after a really dry spell or even just, you know, getting kick-started at the start of the season, it's very stressful on the plants. What are some of your future projects and, and the direction you'd like to see part of the farm take? Yeah, so we have actually grafted a few years ago a bunch of old English cider varieties and heritage varieties. And so uh, looking to the future, there's going to be some hopefully very interesting juices coming out with uh, varieties you've probably never heard of, or maybe your grandparents would have heard of them, as well as some of those sort of traditional English style of ciders as that orchard matures. Sounds like Green Hill Orchards still has a very exciting future ahead. We hope so. Certainly, yeah. There's a lot of lot of different things that we're working on, and, and yeah, definitely looking to the future. Tommy Omens there, ending uh, that step back in time and glance into the future as well at Green Hill Orchards with Lara Webster. It's uh, coming up to half past 12. Uh, I mentioned the rain there earlier. Getting a few texts in. Now, Don has texted in from Dubbo. He said they've only had 13 millimetres for the past week. The stock water is getting low, and they're feeding stock constantly. So uh, uh, Don's saying he would like a bit more rain there. Um, Rod, similar situation. He's west of Lake Cajelago. He says he hasn't had a drop there at all. Uh, and um, from Forbes, 50 kilometres west of Forbes, no rain so far. They had some heavy rain forecast there uh, due to start at 6am, but they've had nothing there as yet, according to that person that's just texted in. Dave's texted in from Trundle saying they had a welcome 21 millimetres on Wednesday and 1.5 millimetres yesterday, better than nothing, but he said sadly it is a bit too late. Uh, for many of those that have wilting crops at the moment. And Greg's texted in from Ningen to say 67.5 millimetres at Ningen, uh, but uh, quite a few people around his district saying that a lot less than that was received in the district around. So he was lucky to get 67.5, but a lot of people in that district uh, didn't get anything like that. It's uh, coming up to 29 minutes to one. G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. The anxious wait for the temporary truce in fighting in Gaza to take effect and with it, the release of some of the Israeli hostages held by Hamas will bring you the latest developments as the clock ticks down. Six weeks on from the voice referendum, can Indigenous leaders find agreement on a new way forward? And can strict catch limits help ensure the survival of Tasmania's popular eating fish, the sand flathead? You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 29 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And as I said, lots of uh, those texts coming through about the rainfall figures, but uh, keep them coming in. And let us know whether or not you welcome that, uh, whether it'll assist with uh, your stock at the moment or whether it'll... Uh, whether it's going to uh, cause you concerns for your harvest. 0467-922-684 is the number to uh, text me here at the country. Uh, 0467-922-684 and quite a few more texts coming through, so I'll get to them shortly as well, but uh, keep them coming in. 28 minutes to one. We'll get the latest from the Bureau in a sec, but before we do that, let's get some news headlines now from Adam Story. Hey, get I, up, I get beat up the Bureau today, did I? You get, well, no, not today. No, I've got the Bureau. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, you beat the Bureau, yes, yes. exactly, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's right, yes, I'm for, back to my old, yes uh, for a change. Back yes, to my old did. time slot. 
<laughs> no, no, no. As I said before, we're flexible and we, we, um, we're, we're happy to accommodate you. Oh, th- yeah. thank you, mate. You just build the show around me. <laughs> well, we keep getting, getting all the cards and letters from people saying how much they enjoy our little banter. I'm oh, not sure what we. I'm, no, sure. I'm not sure what we do. That, that <laughs> people seem to seem to like it. All right then. Um, we'll just keep poking. So the bear. I, I was going to say, if you just put me poking. on, you don't put me on any later because it's all relative. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, be, I'll, I'll be turning up at quarter past one. <laughs> well, I thought you were saying don't put me on after lunchtime. No, well, <laughs> no, just, no, don't put me on before lunchtime right. is the the, the, right. the key there. Right. Yeah, right. fair enough. Um, we better get to the news now. Mm. An Australian warship has sailed through the Taiwan Strait, which is uh, regarded as uh, a sensitive and narrow waterway that separates uh, Taiwan from China. Now, this is in light of obviously uh, the events of the other week where the Australian uh, divers were affected by a sonar pulse from a Chinese ship, which the Chinese have denied. Uh, So um, Defence is refusing to comment on um, why it basically made the transit through the strait. Um, one could only suggest it might have been a bit of an up yours <laughs> to, our, <laughs> that's uh, right. to our friends. Is that what they call it in diplomacy, is it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the technical yeah. term. Right. From my experience mm. in the diplomatic world, <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's the way they talk. They, they say it in French, though, which is no. the language of diplomacy. <laughs> right. yeah. it's a, sounds better in French. French uh, yeah, but much more polite. <laughs> um, Australian banks have announced a joint effort to tackle a rise in scams and prevent customers being ripped off. Among the measures is a $100 million rollout of a new payee system. Uh, to make sure people confirm they're transferring money to the right person. It's funny, I had to do a transfer yesterday, and when you get your... I get a text, which you put mm. the code in, and that, yeah. and along yeah. with that text said, if anyone contacts you asking for this code, please yeah. contact this that's, immediately. That's right. So, yep. yeah, they're out there. Um, there will also be checks, warnings, and payment delays uh, to potential scam accounts, so the limiting... Um, so anything that's maybe flagged as a possible risk, there'll be a delay in the payment going through, so you've got time to uh, to cancel it mm. uh, if you if you're aware of the scam in the first place. I've yeah. seen an alarming increase in text coming to me about um, oh you know click on this and um, and oh. put your details and. It's it's really ramped up, like in the a, in the last yeah, year or so. I got a text saying I owed like six dollars yeah, yeah. forty on a toll. Yeah, which right. I hadn't been here, oh, you know. Right. So, yeah. so that could be so easy for people to get oh, caught absolutely. on that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. without even thinking about it. Yeah, mm. you've got it. Mm. Um, school students expected to gather in Sydney early this afternoon as part of a protest in support of uh, the Palestinian community. Uh, obviously, education authorities and uh, the state government are not supporting this. Uh, students uh, did the same in Melbourne yesterday. And uh, after uh, 41 days, New Zealand now has a government. Uh, Three parties have signed a coalition agreement. Uh, Christopher Luxon has been negotiating uh, with uh, the minor parties. um, And uh, basically, uh, New Zealand first and the ACT Party. Uh, right. Come together with the uh, the nationals to to form this uh, to form the government. Right. Okay. So yeah, there were two Christophers, wasn't there? There was one Christopher's Labour, and there was other that was. Yeah, Christopher Luxon is the uh, the new guy in charge. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, with the nationals. With yeah, the nationals. Yeah. Yes. So he's he's uh, more on the right wing side. And yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. He's not Labour. No. no. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yes. That's right. Which is what the previous government was. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Correct. 
Okay. Right. <laughs> just so I clarify that. Well, there quiz. were two Chris's, you see. There were yeah, two, what was the the two leaders were Chris. Chris uh, yeah, but I can't remember. can't remember now. That's, well, that's your homework for <sighs> Monday. <laughs> All right. It's coming up to 24 minutes. Yeah, see you Monday. Yeah. 24 minutes to one. And we'll be listening at one o'clock. It's uh, time to find out what's happening with the weather details. Dylan Bird at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Very good. Now, we're getting some reports of um, some people saying, uh, well, some overnight, they're saying they've got 130 millimetres near Canamble. They've got uh, you know, 110 in some of the other districts around there, 67 at Ningen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so a whole, um, whole bunch of rainfall. But then some people texting in from Lake Jellico, Forb, saying they've, uh, they've, and Dubbo saying they've had virtually nothing. So, yeah, yeah. Is, is some of it expected for the Central West? Yes, um, it is. Uh, looks like today we are expecting some. Um, but, yeah, I mean, looking at yesterday, uh, where the thunderstorms were and where our severe thunderstorm area was predicted was in that northern inland area, so no- northern plains and the northern and the northwest, where we did see anywhere between 40 and 60 millimetres of rainfall, but it's always interesting to, interesting to see higher totals because that area is not very well sampled by our rain gauges, unfortunately. But yes, it does look like, yeah, not much rain for the Riverina and uh, parts of the Central West. Um, but uh, today it does look like we could be seeing anywhere between 10 and 30 millimetres um, broadly over parts of uh, the West, including the Central West, so the Central West slopes and plains. So... Um, maybe not Dubbo, but parts um, just west of Dubbo, um, maybe parts near Lake Cajeligo and north of um, Griffith, and across the Victorian border near Daniloquin and uh, till Mil- uh, all the way till um, Mildura. Because there so, are a few people out on um, they're out uh, harvesting at the moment, trying to get the crop in before the rain comes. Worried about 15 or 20 mils. It's forecast for the Riverina. Is that still coming? Yeah, look, I mean, that's what we have in the forecast at the moment. Um, the thing is, it will really depend where the storms hit. Right. Um, a, lot of, a lot of this rainfall is, is principally um, storm-generated. I do see some showers forming on the radar that are outside of storms and some showers moving across um, uh, the central west plains into the northern parts of the Riverina at the moment. But, um, yeah, not huge totals for now. Um, for today, so far since 9 a.m., I can see there's been a bit of a trickle, somewhere between two and five millimeters um, across across that part of the world. Um, whereas most of the rainfall so far has fallen over the coast, but again, most of it's only really been around five millimeters. But today in the afternoon, we could see um, much higher totals, particularly over the border between uh, the Riverina district and the far west, um, with uh, possible heavy um, rainfall leading to leading to flash flooding in that area. But, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see um, if those severe storms do develop. But the atmosphere is definitely primed for it today. Right, okay. So if if you don't get those thunderstorms across, you might get one or two millimetres. But if you do, you could get 50 or 100. This is right. And, yeah, and, and those numbers are pretty much spot on. That's what we're seeing today. So um, we'll just uh, cross our fingers and hope that the people who want the rain receive it and those who don't want it don't get it. Now, yesterday, Neil Fraser was saying it's going to last for a while, it's going to hang around, or the rain's going to hang around and sort of circle around and come back again and whatever for about another week. Is that right? Yeah, that's what the forecast currently has. So it looks like uh, we've got a bit of a low-pressure system that's um, developing over Victoria, um, which is going to drag this inland trough, which is currently affecting us right now. It's going to drag this inland trough 
um, a bit further eastward over Saturday and then towards the uh, northeast on Sunday. Um, and with that, we'll see uh, the rainfall shift um, towards the ranges and coast over Saturday and Sunday. But then we're seeing a bit of a repeat. So it looks like um, another, um, another low could develop over maybe uh, parts of SA in Victoria and maybe southern uh, New South Wales into Tuesday and uh, dragging a lot of moisture uh, from the north um, and uh, from the Tasman Sea over New South Wales again Tuesday, Wednesday. So we could see another um, uh, series of uh, scattered rainfall um, uh, through mid next week. Right. Okay. So again, too early to say, but that's what the that's what the forecast is is looking like at the moment. Yeah, that's right. There's still quite a bit of uncertainty, depending, especially depending on where that low may develop um, on Tuesday. So we'll just have to keep our eyes out for that. But uh, yeah, it does look like we're still we're still in this mode of um, rainfall um, repeated over the next week. Okay, all right. Well, um, yeah, they're probably not what uh, people harvesting want to hear. But anyway, that's uh, that's uh, we've got no control over that. Okay, Dylan, that's thanks right. for that. No worries. Thanks, Michael. Dylan Bird at the Bureau there. It's uh, coming up to 19 minutes to one. Well, when Sarah Ryan moved back home to Quandiala in the Central West to settle down on a merino stud, she knew she didn't want to be out on the farm all day. Growing up on a farm, Sarah was always more likely to be inside doing arts and crafts rather than being out with the sheep. When she started candle making as a hobby, she had no idea it would turn into a business, which now sees her making thousands of candles every year and selling them across Australia. Sarah Ryan spoke with Tim Fuchs about life as a candle maker on a farm. I grew up on a farm just on the other side of Quandiala and my parents had a farm there and my husband lived here on this farm where we live now with his with his mother, yeah. So you've been away and you've come back now? Yes, yeah, left for a while, did high school in Sydney, went to uni, lived in Sydney for a while and ended up back, back home and marrying the man down the road. <laughs> so tell me about the property. Well, our, it's pretty old. Um, Richmond's been in the family for... Our kids are the fifth generation here and it was passed down from Trevor's mother's side. So he's lived here with his mother and she was here as a little girl and her parents. So, yeah, it's a lot of history here. So we run a merino stud, um, so we just have sheep here and, um, yeah, that's our main thing. We don't grow crops or anything. Tell me about growing up in Quandy. It was a little bit bigger. The village um, had a lot more people and we're down to, I think it's about 150 people live in the village now. Um, and the school had a lot more kids, you know, a couple of hundred kids when I was little. And I went there and my husband was there. But uh, now my kids have gone through there. I've still got one there. And she is one of like 19 students or 20 students now. It's just a primary school. Um, but yeah, it's a lot quieter. Yeah, from when we were little. But we still have, you know, a lot of community stuff going on. Swimming club still goes really strong and we're lucky to have that. And we've got pub, bowling club, post office. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a great little little community, even though it's small. Yeah, so what's changed? Uh, I think there's less little farming families. Like everyone up and down the roads out of Quandy, there was three school buses going out and there'd be a mailbox every few kilometres of a little farm and... Now, a lot of those farms have sort of joined up or been bought up by corporates or neighbours, so there's just less families here, yeah, less less kids for the school. So when you um, decided to make the move back here and you were looking around, what do I do now? Um, did 
farmer play a big role in that in, in, in regards to did you want to be someone who worked out on the land? No, which my husband probably wouldn't like me saying, but I wasn't that interested in the farm stuff when I was growing up. I was the kid who was inside doing, making things and the creative kid who was painting and sewing and drawing. So yeah, no, I didn't really want to do a farming job. I thought I would like to do something that was more up my alley or something creative. Tell me about the idea behind the candles. Well, I've always made things and I went to art school and uh, I've always sort of been an arty person. So uh, I was interested in good design. And when I was looking at candles one day at a market we had here in Quandy, I thought, that doesn't look that hard. And I, But I wanted to put a candle on my shelf or my table that, that looked nice, that had a, had a certain style to it. So I got a friend who is a designer to do up a label for me that looked like an old-fashioned... Um, tin of something you'd find in an old pantry on a farm and and uh, that's where it, the, the idea came from and it was only going to be just a little hobby for friends and that but it um, people liked the branding I guess and it grew, took off. Describe for me how you went about the process of, of making the candles. Uh, well I had to teach myself how to make candles so there was a lot of googling going on um, and a bit of trial and error yeah, well, I could do it from home because I could order my, all my materials online and I could get everything delivered so I didn't have to go shopping for stuff. And I could just do all my research online. It's something you can just do at home. Doesn't take, didn't take up a lot of space back then. Um, but, yeah, as, as it's grown, I've had to move into the, the cottage on the place to, to do them, yeah. I'd imagine you still get called out onto the farm to do work there when it's required. Yes, yes. Leading up to ram sale time, I'm... I'm sometimes helping with putting the, organising the tags for the rams and making the food for the ram sale and those traditional things. But um, yeah, there's always a bit of a job, pick somebody up from somewhere, pick Trev up when he's got a flat tyre or broken down or bogged. And what's it like running a business from here? There are challenges. There's, uh, you know, the post um, is very expensive to get things delivered and to post items out from the online store. And that can be, um, some people don't, it, it, it pushes up the price. So, you know, people are like, oh, I don't want to pay that postage, but that's just the way it is now. That can be a bit of a um, challenge. And then when I'm wholesaling and I've got products in shops, um, just delivering them, you know, to, I've got about, I don't know, 30 stockists, I suppose, and just getting heavy boxes to places. I try to deliver a few that are local, but when you've got to post them, that's expensive. Yeah, and, and it's isolated, like, you're on your own all day, but I like I work well on my own. I like to yeah be alone and just plug away. The idea that you can run a business like this from a farm, what's your advice to people? Yeah, it's definitely achievable if you can find something that you enjoy doing and then it's just making sure it's something that can be done uh, on the farm alongside all the other activities and things you might have to help out with. But um if you are a creative person living in the bush, there's so many opportunities and uh, ways to live that way. I think some people think if you are not in the agriculture sector or anything, you won't be able to do what you want to do in the bush, but you can. Candlemaker Sarah Ryan speaking there with Tim Fuchs on her farm at Quandiala. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to... 12 minutes to one uh, getting a few more texts in on the rainfall and um, uh, someone's texting in from Tommingly to say not enough uh, rainfall there to measure anything so um, 
but a little bit disappointing at Tommingly at the moment. It's 12 minutes to one on the country hour. Well, let's uh, talk talk about a different sort of uh, cropping now because after a bumper harvest at Kalara Station in the far northwest of New South Wales, Justin and Julie McClure are packing away the headers and carting the remaining grain off their property ready for next season. But it hasn't been your typical harvest if uh, you uh, know the sort of country we're talking about there. The McClures have lake bed and floodplain crops, as Lily McClure explains. Justin and Julie McClure's property is approximately 100,000 hectares and 300 kilometres northeast of Broken Hill. It sits on the Darling River, which presents as an ample asset for the McClures, particularly when it breaks its banks. What is typically a dry and often barren landscape, the flooding event of January 2023 allowed the McClures to plant one of their biggest crops yet. Step into the heart of creativity on ABC A place to embrace a national treasure with inside the Sydney Opera House. Opening nights are always stressful. It's ridiculous how emotional it makes you. You just need to make sure you get a ride. And enjoy artwork. Last night of the proms, knowing the score and so much more. Do you expect to go your heart's desire in arts, music and culture. It is magic. All streaming for free on ABC iView. The McClure's floodplain harvesting is a practice steeped in family history. Julie says that through the resilience and adaptable nature of the people out in the far west, rare opportunities that present themselves can be utilised. People out west are pretty innovative. You know, they might see an opportunity and whether that's because of a stressful situation or whether it's just, um, just a... a a good thing. Um, Justin's family, uncle and father, cropped along the Darling um, after the floods in the 70s and, and probably prior to that, but really um, the floodplain, um, they were cropping on the floodplain sort of more so in the 70s and um, grew cereals and um, sunflowers and safflower and linseed and lots of things. So yeah, it's been in the family for a couple of generations now, three, three generations now. The location of the property has been able to present many opportunities that allow for diversification of the McClure's enterprise and to explore other avenues of agriculture. Tilpa's um, a little bit of a delta, I guess, as far as uh, the Paru and the, um, and the Darling, sort of, uh, they converge at the, sort of, uh, out to the west of Tilpa and um, that uh, is an ideal place after after flood event uh, so not many people have that type of um, country and so not many people crop the the rainfall is probably the most significant factor as to why people just would not choose to do that look diversification in the west is probably the key um, you know people say water and wire but um, diversification taking some market opportunities and and those opportunities have been um, taken up by us in the organic um, grain market so uh, it's it, look it's just been unbelievable the, the opportunities that um, the diverse nature of, of where we live presents us with some magnificent opportunities. Kalara was one of the first pastoral runs opened up in western New South Wales um, it sort of settled in in the 1850s so Momba was a was a big guy. He was two million acres, and 
Dunlop next door is a million acres and Clara is approximately a million acres. So traditionally a wool growing area, probably not cattle country by choice, but uh, given the opportunities with the flooding, it's uh, really um, we've uh, been able to use that event to, uh, to, to jump into some cattle as well. While the Darling River does create the opportunity to sow larger scale crops after a flooding event, acquiring more equipment on property has allowed the McClure's to continue harvesting crops on a smaller scale outside of the flooding events. We invested in some irrigation infrastructure which is sort of uh, we will crop year on year um, using uh, a fifth, an area that's, uh, that we've sort of designated as our cropping area. Um, so we may choose to cop year on year, uh, depending on the, um, the availability of water in the Darling. We haven't extracted water out of the Darling for a good couple of years, but uh, it's uh, been a good couple of floods as well in that time. So yes, but copping to the scale that um, we've had this year is, is not a usual event. The Darling used to flood on average once every six years, uh, but it hasn't. Um, as with averages, it's not really. After the Darling River floods, it's an important art monitoring the ground moisture as the water recedes. Knowing where and when to plant the crops, as well as what sort of crops to sow, is all a part of the process once the river aggresses. When um, you, you might have an area of sort of three or 4,000 acres and, and as the flood recedes, uh, that country becomes available to, uh, to, to plant. So depending on the time of the year that it... Um, that the flood recedes um, as to whether you might choose to put an oil crop in, oil seed crop in like, like canola or, or just your traditional cereals like oats. The organic market is, um, has there's a demand for organic oats and um, so we sort of choose to do that. Sometimes we might seal country, work country, seal it over and, uh, and leave it for a more uh, correct window to, uh, to plant um, plant the cereal crops but um, yeah we've grown all sorts of things over the time and it's um, more about timing, soil temperature, you know, soil moisture. Julia McClure from Kalara Station. Ah uh, yeah, radio. Yeah. We'll just go for up the top of the dam and then I'll see you where you are. Where are you just filling into the field bin are you? Yeah over to the pivot. I'll, I'll be over there in a minute I'm almost still. While the location of the McClure's property has been a key part of the successful diversification of their business, it hasn't been without its challenges. Being in such an isolated part of New South Wales means that it's important to be resourceful and utilise the expertise of those around. Family friend of the McClure's, Tom Lansom, travels from his home in South Australia's Barossa Valley to help with the harvest at Kalara. He has worked two of the McClure's harvests before, but says this one has been different quantity of grain, the amount of resources we've needed to actually get it off, get it away, get it sold. A bit of adventing as we're going, but that's what you do out here. Yeah. How significant is it to see crops in this area? Uh, it's pretty good. It's because obviously you don't get it, it's not a year on a year. There's a bit of a run at the moment, uh, but that's unusual. But it's good, very good, and it's exciting. It's good to be part of it, but it's, it's good to see it go and then finish, you know, and we can make it a complete cycle, which is good. I guess, what were your expectations coming out here before the harvest? Very little because you just don't know. Uh, and that probably makes it easier if, to change to suit. You know, what's discussed today and then tonight and then tomorrow morning 
is different what happens by lunch because communications is a problem. Uh, phones and you send a text message, you'll get back to the service and you'll get 20 text messages. That is a problem, but out here it's not going to change. Surround yourself by smart people. Tom Lanson from South Australia's Barossa Valley ending that report from Lily McEwer and additional reporting from Bill Orman. You can check out some pics on the harvest uh, in the online story abc.net.au slash rural. And bees now, and experts will tell you that uh, there's a lot we don't know about Australia's native bees. About only two-thirds of the 3,000 native species have actually got a name. So it may be surprising to find that working to study and catalogue our native bees is a tough slog for those in the industry. Adjunct lecturer at Flinders University, Dr James Dory, is an Australian, is an Australian native bee expert, but he's about to make the move to America for work. He says there's just no funding in Australia. So in terms of the world context, we are, I don't know, decades or centuries behind the United States, but the US is ahead of the rest of the world. But even compared to much of North America and Europe and, and some other places, we really don't know that much about our bee fauna. We're ahead, of course, of some other places that just don't receive the same amount of research funding overall, um, you know, like... Asia and Africa and those places are amazing and full of really cool bees. But, you know, for a pretty wealthy country, we, we really should know a lot more about our important pollinators than we do. Yes, when you say we're decades or centuries even behind the US, what kind of information do they have about their native bees that we don't have about ours? Oh, so much. All the way from, you know, the really basic taxonomy, for example, you know, in the US, there's something like four or four and a half thousand bee species that are named and known to be there. In Australia, we have about 16 or 1700 species named, and then estimates are somewhere between two and three thousand species. So, like another thousand species remain to be named um, in Australia. And and even for the species that we we do have a name for, we probably know next to nothing about them which, of course, is a huge challenge if you want to, you know, see if they're useful for agriculture. That's Dr James Dory, who's an adjunct lecturer at Flinders University. (laughs) To Griffith's Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Sheep dominated the yarding and heavy mutton is what buyers wanted at Griffith today. Prices surged to much higher levels on the back of some heavy rainfall across the north. Big merino ewes in a long skin sold to $130 and there was a number of pens over $100 a head. Heavy crossbred ewes to $105. Good heavy mutton was tracking around $300 cents a kilo. Mid-run sheep, $40 to $80. In comparison, the lamb market was dull. There wasn't a lot of weight or polish on the lambs. However, buyers didn't really engage even on the better presented lots. Best shorn lambs reached 156 and there was only half a dozen pens over $130 a head today. The better drafts of trade in heavier lambs were estimated at $420 to $480, cents, with sales above $500 cents rare. Most trade-weighted lambs, $80 to $115. Light lambs also lost momentum in a patchy lineup. On the country hour, it's news time, one o'clock.